It's the best time of the year. That's right. Bar Convent Brooklyn is back from June 13th to 14th at Industry City. If you're in the drinks industry, and I'm guessing a few of you are, this is a great chance to network with peers, learn about trends and techniques, and listen in on panels led by industry experts. Get your tickets at barconventbrooklyn.com. And hey, I want to be there, so we'll see you there. Cheers. Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Who doesn't love a cocktail that comes with a sing-song recipe, listener? I actually don't know how many of those there are, but in the case of the punch category of drinks, that little ditty goes something like one of sour, two of sweet, three of strong, four of weak. And sometimes a touch of spice just to make things nice. For today's drink, we're leaving out the weak, which results in something of a lethal alcoholic bomb or a punch that packs a punch, if you will. It's the first punch we've covered here on Cocktail College, surprisingly, and it's the Pisco Punch. And I'm gonna stop saying punch now because that's a lot. Now, chances are its creator may or may not have enjoyed us talking about this drink, because while Duncan Nickel made this cocktail famous at San Francisco's Bar Exchange Bar in the early 1900s, he kept the spec under wraps and he took it to the grave with him. That bastard. But fear not though, listener, because bartenders have, over the years, recreated the Pisco Punch to what we can only hope is similar enough to what Nichols was serving back in the day, though perhaps minus his rumored cocaine-laced tonic, there was something of a special ingredient. Here to walk us through this absolute boozy belter is Jay Pulio, the bar manager down at Mama Fufu in Daytona, Florida. We'll be talking marinated pineapple, pink drinks, and of course the tropical classic that is the Pisco Punch. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. It's been cited as being the most lethal alcoholic bomb ever conceived by man. Not your words, Jay Pulio, but words that I'm hoping you might be able to back up today as we explore the Pisco Punch. Jay, thanks so much for joining us, man. Where are you joining us from? Uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. Nice. Sunny down there. Perfect perfect weather, I would imagine, for a, for a Pisco Punch. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous weather right now. And as I think you told me just beforehand, two different seasons down there, correct? Yes, it's uh, hot and not hot. <laughs> it's, it's pretty it's in the not high like i said it lasts about four weeks just just after christmas it suddenly gets uh in the the the, the low 50s and you want you want to put a sweatshirt on you're like what, what is this cold i moved to florida for warm <laughs> yeah why are you punishing us with four weeks of every year of yes. uh, 50s weather you know really yes. uh, yeah that's a real hardship you got over there uh jay Iconic cocktail for us to cover today. I was so glad that you wanted to talk about this one uh, for many reasons. First of all, unless I'm mistaken, first punch we've ever covered here on Cocktail College, which I think for the purists is maybe sacrilege, the fact that we're 80 episodes plus. (laughs) (laughs) David Wondrich will have my head on a spike uh, if he ever found that one out, I guess. And then otherwise... Uh, well, I love Pisco, so I love chatting about that. But 
this drink, iconic history, so much to explore there. So how about you just kick it off for us? And also maybe if you can preface it by telling us what a punch is classically. So classically, I believe uh, defined as, what's it like? Two strong, one weak, one sweet uh, mixed together. There's generally some tea involved um, a lot of times. Uh, but it, it was kind of the the lubricating vessel for for parties and social gatherings. Mm-hmm. And 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 almost even I believe that the precursor to that famous definition of the cocktail that we use uh, the uh, what is it Columbia Review? You know, I, I always forget the name of that publication. But anyway, <laughs> you know the classic the the spirit bitters sugar water. Uh, so it's kind of the, the the precursor for that, right? The precursor for modern yeah. mixed drinks. Yeah, um, it's, that's the. Uh, the punch is the large format of the old fashioned. <laughs> and you know, what I love about this cocktail too and its history is it's a- another worthy reminder that everything that we think is new is actually old. And, and all these techniques as bartenders in the industry, we come up with, hey, I'm batching cocktails. This recipe's a secret, blah, uh, blah, blah. It's already been done, guys. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? I, like, I, I've said that so many times to new bartenders coming up. They're like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna invent something. I'm like, I'm sure it's probably be done before, <laughs> whether or not it's in publication. But like, you know, you, you, you do your best. You, mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> <laughs> and if it hasn't been invented, well, maybe there's a reason. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> like this tastes bad. <laughs> <laughs> but Jay, tell us about the origin stories and and, and the background of the pisco punch, because yeah, like I said up top there. A ton for us to get into, which is which is fun because we've. I think we feel like we haven't had a historical dive in a while now. So tell us about all of that. Yeah. Uh, so the Pisco Punch came to fame, I would say, uh, coming out of San Francisco at the Bank Exchange. Um, the Bank Exchange had Pisco on their menu. It's advertised, I believe. Uh, David Waters wrote about it long before uh, Duncan Nickel came to run the bar, but. Duncan Nichols' version, and obviously they were doing punches before that, really kind of made it famous. Um, his version of it, um, shrouded in mystery and, and secrecy of what he actually put in it, how he actually concocted it. He took over the bar, I believe, in like 1893-ish, uh, and ran the bar up until the onset of Prohibition. He didn't let people see him do it. He actually made his special mixture uh, in the basement of the Bank Exchange. So the Bank Exchange, uh, if you don't know, uh, was a pretty famous bar saloon at the time that is located where the current Transamerica building is. And everyone knows the the big pyramid Transamerica building in the the sideline, the skyline of uh, San Francisco. Um, But that's where the Bank Exchange was actually located. Uh, going towards the North Beach area, coming away from the financial district. His his bar and saloon was visited by famous people all over the place. We spoke earlier, I was like talking about uh, how Hemingway frequented the bar. Um, <laughs> which which famous bar didn't that guy get to, by the way? Right? Like, he got around. He I got mean, around. <laughs> considering travel was not the most expedient at the time, like he was very well-traveled. Um, all in pursuit of good booze, it would seem. Yeah, or he's like, oh, they got a good drink out there? I'm going, I'm going. But yeah, uh, he he did never let anyone know what his actual recipe was. Um, after his death, uh, people who were closely associated with him did come out and say, "Oh, it's a bit of pineapple triangles 
soaked in sugar with a little bit of pisco and then mix that marinating liquid and some of those pieces back in. I know, as we said earlier, that uh, it does pack a punch. Uh, the bar he ran, uh, he actually had a limit, three drink limit, no matter who you were. That's, that's all you're getting. <laughs> Predating the, the zombie then, right? It yeah, is the zombie, yeah. right, that has that. So Yeah, what they were putting in there, uh, it would probably bring anyone back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was rumored um, to have a uh, cocaine-laced tonic in it. Um, I believe it's uh, Vin Marina or Mariana, something like that. Um, I mean, at that time, they put Peruvian coca leaves in everything, whether it was Coca-Cola um, or other... Uh, wine-based uh, aperitifs or aromatized wines. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, most of those things came out after his death. So these, yeah, these secrets were revealed. And before you get yeah. into that, that part of the story, by the way, as well, just another one I want to point out here, bartenders or, you know, sommeliers, what grows together, goes together. Again, our buddy here, Duncan Nichols, is doing it back in the day, Pisco, Peruvian coca leaves, perhaps cocaine, we don't know. It would have been legal at the time if he was. Um, Certainly would have kept the customers coming back for more. But again, this idea of matching ingredients from where they come, guys, it's all been done before. The regional pairing, as if it were wine. (laughs) (laughs) But sorry, I interrupted you there. So yeah, um, bar closes, prohibition comes about. Do we know what happened to Nichols, by the way? Uh, he, he passed away in 1926, I believe. So not too long after the onset of Prohibition. Yeah. I mean, if you spent your entire life and career doing being a barman, mm-hmm. and then those teetotalers come by like, you can't do that no more. Uh, that probably took took a lot of wind out of his sails, I, I would say. <laughs> Especially as a Scotsman, too. He probably you know enjoyed a drink. Uh, I'm sure yeah. he continued to drink, as everyone did during Prohibition, but... That would have, yeah, like you said, knocked the wind out of his sails. So how does this recipe become known? Because, yeah, Nichols kept it a secret. He's down there prepping it on his own, sending it up in the dumbwaiter by many accounts to the to the bar, his finished preparation. Mm-hmm. So how does the uh, the recipe become uncovered? Um, it's all hearsay and rumor. Um, people that were closely associated with him, whether it was people that actually worked at the bar, uh, that might have been like looking over his shoulder, trying to steal a glance of him down the basement, hiding behind a few boxes. Um, <laughs> stories came out, which were, I would say, verified or backed up by other accounts of patrons. Uh, there was a, a certain hue to the cocktail, which made people think about the coca leaf laced wine tonic. Interesting. Um, added to it. I do know. He readily did say, like, yes, there's there is a, a gum syrup, obviously pineapple. I mean, everyone was tasting it. Um, and then the Pisco, which at that time in the San Francisco area, during the gold rush, I mean, Pisco was huge. The boats would come up from Peru, from the Puerto Pisco. They would go up, unload all their wares, take everyone's gold, and then head back on down and just constantly do that trade route. Um, Amazing. So Pisco in the area was was a huge, huge boon. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think I read as well, just to add to that, some account of maybe uh, the bar owner was kind of taking inventory of what he was ordering in and trying to deduce from that, like, okay, yeah. like what might be used in this, yeah. <laughs> in this drink? I don't know. It's, 
I, I guess I got a question for you here, Jay. Have you ever been, <laughs> I don't know, uh, compelled to keep a recipe from your employees of a drink or a, a creation and try and shroud no. something in secrecy? No, I mean, I mean, ever since coming up in in this uh, industry, I've always felt it was a better idea to share. Yeah, share thoughts. Uh, I'm originally from the Northeast, and uh, there was a, a book called uh, Boston Drink and Tell. Yeah, that was uh, that came out, and I thought the idea of that community of bartenders and operators sharing each other's cocktails with each other to obtain a higher level of hospitality for the guests that come in like oh you love this drink over at this place i know how to make that let me make that for you here or you're really into this this and this oh i let me call ahead for you like we'll send you off my buddy my buddy bob over there he's great he'll take good care of you um I always thought it was in everyone's best interest to to share. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I could see at the time that those secrets kept those patrons coming in. When when you have those trade secrets like, this is my secret formula. Um, so I, I, I could kind of see both both aspects of it. And one final fact of this drink too, uh, maybe you have the answer to this, maybe not, but... Does he become known as Pisco John? I don't know where, where's Pisco the John, John. Where's the John come into it? And the place becomes I'm, known as I'm Pisco sure. John's. I did. I did see the the AKA Pisco John. I was like John. Um, <laughs> I don't. I don't know if that was uh, a nickname for folks of that time of uh, a Scottish descent. You know, he was a, 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 a Scotsman, I believe. I feel like if anything, yeah, it could have gone Pisco Jock. Like that's yeah. that's what we, you know. That's what they like to call us in the in England, at least. The jocks uh, like to say of our Scottish friends here. But but then you know what happens when you come across. You go through Ellis Island. <laughs> they're like, we can't say that word. <laughs> You're a John. Yeah, exactly, John. <laughs> yeah. No more. Yeah, that's a good one. Probably probably has some something there. Or you know what? Maybe another untold story. And I'm happy to leave that one to lie and <laughs> remain shrouded in mystery. Jay, before we get into each of the ingredients here and break those down, yeah. uh, we said this packs a punch, as I said up top, a, a lethal alcoholic bomb, which um, conjures all kinds of imagery in my mind here. But um, flavor profile-wise, where are you trying to head with this beyond balance, of course, being a given? Um, I think a lot of that's going to come from uh, the Pisco that you choose in that. I'm a huge fan of either house-made or house-blended uh, achilados. Most achilados I find on the market are like, eh, good for a pisco sour, but if I wanted to do like uh, old-fashioned riff or something more spirit-forward, not the best flavors. Um, I love the Italia, the Torrentel, uh, most of the Verde, those more aromatic grapes. Um, during my time in San Francisco, the last place I was running, we did a lot of in-house blending. We had our own house blend, sweet vermouth, dry vermouth, sherry. Oh, nice. Of course, we were actually we were blending our own in-house absolato with the Cabranta, uh, Italia, Torrentel, Mosto Verde. Because at that time, we had obviously the Pisco Sour, the Pisco Punch on the menu, but we were also doing those spirit forward. So we needed that workhorse that could go both both ways for us mm-hmm. i believe uh, it was Encanto pisco released a a bartender's blend 
one year. That's cool. And it, it tasted remarkably like what we had blended at the bar. I was like, huh, <laughs> I know this flavor. That's funny. But my bottle cost is way less than what they're charging for that. <laughs> <laughs> See, usually when, when, when brands come out with those products, one of the appeals is like the few that I've noticed out there, generally they arrive in one liter bottles and oftentimes they're priced really well and they don't go too wild on the kind of marketing and the labels and stuff. But So that does surprise me to hear that actually that might be more expensive because I figured it might be the yeah, opposite Yeah, I want to say like... It, it was a couple dollars more expensive than their baseline in Kanto. And both mm-hmm. of them, I guess both of them were delicious. But this this is the business of nickels and dimes. And mm-hmm. our margins are really small. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You gotta squeeze every every, every last cent every, out of it. From I'm juicing up pineapples every every other Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a great point for us, at, you know, like actually, yeah, let's discover Pisco a little bit more because or explore it. This is something that came up for me recently when I was uh, stepping in on the uh, the Vine Pair podcast and I was uh, interviewing uh, Steven Soderbergh about his brand Singani 63. And mm-hmm. obviously, you know, all intents and purposes, it's it's a Pisco, it's a, it's a grape based brandy, right? Made using Muscat of Alexandria, I believe, which would probably be similar to the Torrentel, but to me, it really did remind me of those very aromatic, uh, floral, white wines, mm. Muscat, Torrentes, if you want to go to Argentina, yeah. those kind of things. Um, is that a feature or characteristic of all Pisco, or is that just you have a couple of varieties that are like that and other maybe more toward the kind of like Uni Blanc that's used as a base for, for uh, you know, cognac and is kind of doesn't have a lot of character. Yeah, I believe, if my memory serves me, that there's three or four kind of non-aromatic grapes. So Quebranta being probably the most popular and the most used is like a, a nice kind of structured backbone. Uh, when we blended our, our Altralado, uh we did use that was predominantly a good Quebranta that we, that we put in it. And then we used the more aromatic uh, varietals to kind of just flower off of that. The most of Verde, I'd probably say, was the least used, but also packed the most punch. Got it. Um, I love that idea too, and it does remind me too, when, you know, tasting that Singani, which again, it's kind of a relative of Pisco, right? But I was surprised at just how floral it was. And I did wonder, you know, yes, I can see this working in a sour, but maybe there's some cocktails for which this would just be too aromatic and fruity mm. and floral, right? Like, you definitely want that balance. It's it's a fine line. A definitely a fine line. When it comes to Pisco too, are we generally looking at 40% ABV or do some of these others that you're talking about, do they go a little higher? I've seen a little, I've seen a little higher. Uh, generally about like 42, 43-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, they're not coming in at, at barrel strength or anything. No, no. <laughs> and... In your experience, why do you think it is that a lot of these um, fruit or similar, I'm going to include agave spirits in this, right? Like, so fruit-based spirits, eau de vie or agave, they can arrive at or close to 40% ABV and still really pack a punch and hold up. Whereas like, if you pass me a 40% ABV whiskey for any kind of cocktail, I'm going to be like, yeah, where's the rest of it? You know? (laughs) Um, I think, Part of that is just because of the raw ingredient. What's what's whiskey made of? Do you want a piece of bread? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like distilled beer. Yeah. So I think just by the nature of the raw ingredients going into it, 
that those fruits or agave, they have a lot more depth of character in their flavor profile than a malted grain mash build. So at 40, we're all like, cool, that's apple juice. Mm -hmm. But then when those ingredients really sing is when you're like, all right, at 95, 101, all right, now we're talking. Mm -hmm. Maybe not necessarily always melt your face off at 130. (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, Booker, slow down a little bit. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, honestly. Uh, I've got a couple of those that I've been meaning to try. They keep arriving, and honestly, yeah, some of them I'm like, I, I, I need to prepare myself for this. They're just so yeah. they're so hot. But I mean, obviously, they, they don't taste of alcohol. That's the thing. That's a you know common misconception. Um, while we're on this note too, I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear too that actually like 43, 44 is kind of low for a gin. Like gin yeah. standard i'm looking at 47 which is kind of surprising really when yeah. yeah so just really or just crank it up go to navy strength all day <laughs> you know i still not fully perfected how to use navy strength in cocktails just beyond it being like just super intense um let's return back to our ingredients here now and look at pineapple so can you give us an idea of what mr nichols might have been doing duncan with his preparation and how does that differ or is it the same approach that you use today? Um, I think it's actually pretty close considering what is rumored to have happened was uh, him taking pineapple chunks and triangles and macerating them basically in sugar, adding a little bit of pisco to that. So it's basically almost like making an oleo, pulling out all the juices um, and the flavor out of that pineapple and then using that mix and some of the pieces of the pineapple to go back into um the cocktail i thought it was very interesting um that his his cocktail was stirred that he he didn't shake the cocktail um which i found pretty fascinating considering i think more modern techniques where it's the general rule of thumb obviously there's always exceptions to the rule they're like oh it's cloudy you're shaking Mm -hmm. it clear we can stir that um (laughs) Have you ever stirred a margarita? I've never tried. I'm just thinking about this, this to myself here. I've never tried to stir it. Someone has. I'm sure. I'm sure someone's done the, the taste between the, like the the aeration and the mouthfeel with like a margarita comparatively to a stirred down like. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting concept. It was said that like he used lime, but like how much lime? What do those limes taste like? I mean, I've I've had fabulously stirred cocktails that had a little bit of lime juice whether you're talking like a half teaspoon or a quarter ounce just just to give it a little pop or like a little lime coin mm-hmm. thrown in mm-hmm. and it stirred stirred down to give a little bit of the uh the bitterness but also some of that acidity pop in the in the mm-hmm. drink so since so much of the recipes just shrouded in secrecy like who knows <laughs> maybe, maybe Maybe he was like, you know what, this this pineapple juice and pisco, I'm just going to pop a little bit of lime in it, just a little balance that out, and it just needs a stir. Yeah, that's it. Well, this is the point at which we're going to leave Duncan behind and, and, and that historic recipe, because I'm keen to hear now your approach to it. So we've covered pisco. Not sure if there's anything else you want to add there. If not, I'd love to hear your approach to uh, pineapple, and then we'll we'll get into the other ingredients. Yeah, I mean... For me, I always loved using a pineapple gum syrup 
um, which is basically what he was making for all intents and purposes. They are fabulous store-bought ones. Shout out to Small Hand Foods and Libreco. They, they make great ones because, uh, honestly, making a pineapple gum is kind of a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Um, no, one want, no one wants to juice that many pineapples. If someone were attempting to do that, can you just run us through the process briefly? Um, well, basically, if, if at least for me, the way I, I've made it in the past, if you're basically subbing out for like a simple syrup, instead of water, pineapple juice, and then adding sugar to that. So you're turning that concentrated pineapple flavor into a juice and then incorporating possibly a little bit of water to thin it out. Um, and then some gum Arabic or the Arabic powder uh, mm-hmm. for that thickener. So you get that mouthfeel, that weightiness that you get with cocktails. Cool. So there are versions out there available. And this is one of those cases where you're like, you know what? Consistency-wise, time-wise, ingredient-wise, yeah. just buy it when the quality out there is, is, is as good as it is. Yeah. When when I worked out West, we we bought it. <laughs> and where where I'm currently running a Mama Fufu down Daytona, we we buy we buy a, a very delicious pineapple gum. Mm-hmm. I never have to worry about my my bar prep guy. Like, did he measure this out correctly? Like, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a little different today. <laughs> well, also as well, that brings us to the point of like pineapples and how inconsistent they can be as an ingredient, right? Or even coming coming in like overly ripe, not ripe enough. <laughs> yeah. You're in the shit, so you need to make it. Like, like I have to 86 half of my menu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, this is something that comes up a lot, too, when we talk about pineapple cocktails. Like, most of the folks we've had on the show are like, Dole's cool. So maybe, like, do Dole and 50-50 Dole and fresh pineapple anyway. So if you're already at that point, like, yeah, just, I don't know. I mean, I would say if you're already at that point, you can make it. You can make a, a pisco punch with just using pineapple juice. Like you mm-hmm. don't have to try to. You can do pineapple juice and a simple syrup and be totally fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I don't know if I, I would subscribe to the. We'll just use dull pineapple juice to make the pineapple gum syrup out of. <laughs> yeah, at that point, it's like, yeah, it seems kind of counterintuitive. Um, one thing I like to do in summer is a little. Uh, going to sound like a bit of a wanker here, but little acid-adjusted pineapple <laughs> juice for margaritas. I'm telling you, for oh, batch and margs. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. Honestly, that thing goes down well with the with the, with the folks here. Um, <laughs> but, you know, each to their own. I, I, I think there's a time and a place for acid-adjusting and things like that. And, and for mm-hmm. batching pineapple margs, I'm, I'm all here for it. Yeah. So you mentioned that Duncan probably might have been using a little bit of citrus. Um would you go with lime? What's your approach to that next ingredient for this? Uh, I would probably go with lemon. Okay. Um, I, th- I think lemon lets the spirit in it sing a bit more. Lime tends to almost have a, uh, a muting effect in it. I believe he did use lime in his, but again... What were those limes? I bet they're a bit sweeter than the limes we have now. <laughs> is he getting Persian limes from Mexico? Or <laughs> so much has changed in over a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> Jay, have you done much bartending like overseas, either on like guest shifts or whatever? Or, or... no, no, I've 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 been coast to coast in the U.S., but not, mm-hmm. nothing overseas. 
or or maybe as a kind of a, as a tourist or a, you know whatever traveling but i do find it fascinating that like when i used to live in south america i believe people used the same word for lime and lemons and and oftentimes like right like the 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 fruit you would have oftentimes and that very much does depend on country to country and how part of the national cuisine it is too and actually i used to live out in uh, cambodia and i couldn't get hold of limes or lemons it was just this fruit that looked like a hybrid of the two and <laughs> probably was genetically closer to the what the original fruit was right like we've taken these things as humans you know in yeah. different directions right yeah i've i've always asked uh my spanish speaking friends like i don't understand like but when you ask for a lime you just say limon like but what if you want a lemon like is it a tonal thing? Like they're like, no, limon. <laughs> I'm like, do you just instinctually know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's what they want. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it, yeah, it's it's wild. And again, maybe yeah, just the, you know the use case scenario. I don't know, but um, I find that really interesting. That idea that you think that lime can, in some cases, be muting, whereas lemon can be elevating. What do you put that down to? Um, I mean, it's, it's probably some chemistry behind it. I would probably say it's something to do with the, the acids, the acid levels in it. Sometimes, I mean, for like a Pisco Sour, for instance, I'm split citrus all the way that I think it needs both that neither one or the other is quite right. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the, the punch, I think the lemon is just sour enough that it plays well with the pineapple the pisco that you're using, whether it's a uh, alcalado um, or a single varietal, like a more um, aromatic uh, grape, and then the addition of either like a, a dubonnet or a lele rouge to kind of round out. So you're kind of getting back to what supposedly was that that original look with the the light pink hue to it. Yeah. So that's something we haven't discussed yet, and 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 probably something worth noting there too so this this cocktail should have a a, a light pink hue to it yeah I, for, I forget who wrote about it um it was it was a guest but they, i think they described it as like looking at a sunset that oh. there was a, a a pink hue to it uh obviously packing a punch not not necessarily oh a romantic sunset <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah that's fascinating um, and then final ingredient we have here, just the the sweetener. Would that be incorporated then in that pineapple product that you say that you that you'd be buying these days, or are you using something additional for your preparation? Yeah, no. I mean, if if you're going with a, a pineapple gum, like that's all that's all the sweetener that you're probably going to need. Um, mm-hmm. If you were going the route of like throwing that dull can in there and and throwing just pineapple juice to get that pineapple flavor, uh, obviously you're, you're going to want to add some some sort of sugar whether it be a simple syrup rich simple syrup uh or an actual gum syrup to it uh that is not flavored you could also get the same effect basically Mm -hmm. and interesting on that initial conversation of like punches oftentimes you'd find um spices included in classic punch recipes right like that was a a a component Mm. of it doesn't seem to be any in the in the historical recipe for this, but if you were tempted to maybe uh, go down a rich, simple route or, you know, spice, add some flavorings to uh, a sweetener for this, 
any ingredients immediately pop to mind? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you could always go with uh, a bitter of some sort. I know the one that we did at the bar in San Francisco, Devil's Acre, we had house-made Gold Rush bitters that were um, predominantly a citrus hmm. flavor component. It was basically all the citrus <laughs> all in one nice. um, that we used in that. But yeah, it's like, I would say bitters at most. I wouldn't. I wouldn't play too much with it because you don't want to. If you are going to be adding like a Dubonnet or a Lillet Rouge to it, to mess up the spices and flavors that you're getting from that, so you're kind of getting the best of both worlds when you're adding those aromatic mm -hmm. uh, wines to them. It's a great reminder and a nice callback to uh, your your earlier answer there. Like, what should this taste like? Like, yeah, Pisco should be the the star of the show here. It's in the name. So, yeah, that, that, that's that's the point. Nice. Uh, Jake, can you now talk us through your build for this or your ideal build for this cocktail, including specs and preparation as if you were making them for us here today? Yeah. So, I mean, in a perfect world, I would, I would probably go with either my own blended Altolato Pisco, uh, if that was not available, probably an aromatic, uh, whether it be an Italia or a Torrentel, ounce and a half. Three quarter ounce of fresh lemon juice, uh, a half ounce of pineapple gum, a uh, half ounce of uh, either Dubonnet or Lillet Rouge, uh, then shaken, probably double strained into like a Nicanora, and maybe garnished with like a little candied pineapple wedge. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. Sounds delicious. Everyone loves having a snack with their cocktail. Exactly. Nice little bite there. Might even. If it's myself here, just incorporate some candied ginger just because I, I can't stop eating that thing. And yeah, ginger and pineapple is great. <laughs> you have one and that's it. We have candied ginger on the bar because we had two menus ago. Uh, we had uh, penicillin on, on the menu. And my bar back just asked me, he's like, do we even need this out here? It's like, yeah, we always <laughs> need this out here because I might want a snack. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you get that, though, in especially in service, right? Or it's a busy day, you're working. It's like you haven't had a chance to get a meal. Like, sometimes that is your meal. You'll eat, like, five, yeah, ten pieces it. over the course of the shift, and that's you're like, it. that's keeping you going. I'm running around setting up the bar, and it's always one of the guys in the kitchen is like, hey, family meal's up. I was like, that's cool. And they're like, well, you should grab some. I'm like, I don't have time to eat it. Because I'm setting up the bar still. <laughs> I'm like, I wish, I wish I had time to sit down and just scarf this down real quick. Like, <laughs> this is why I eat before I come to work. You know, when I used to work as a chef, one of the things that would kind of wind us up in the kitchen, we'd do double shifts every day. So nine till, nine till midnight, nine till one, whatever. Uh, we wouldn't have a chance to eat. We didn't have the time. But we'd see... The evening, generally speaking, it was servers. Bartenders were never really guilty of this, but the evening servers would come in at four and they'd be like, right, where's family meal? And it's like, yeah, you haven't even worked a minute yet. You just got here. <laughs> you literally, you had all day to eat. You just got here. What's going on? I don't know. It was wild. That's why that's why back of the house will play tricks sometimes on front of the house servers. <laughs> oh, I got this dead Sunday. Look at that. Oh, is that lard? 
Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amen to that. The old classic. We used to send some down the but some servers to the back fridge and be like, "Hey, man, look, I'm really into shit here. I need you to help me out with something." I got two bags of salmon legs prepped back there in the fridge. Can you go get it? I think the record we had, someone went back four times to try and find the salmon legs. It's <laughs> I need a pan stretcher. Give me a pan stretcher. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No, well, nothing like a little, I, I don't know. Good natured hazing. <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and there is a point at which it can go too far. So we, I do want to be wary of that. But that yes. is also one of the things that makes the industry magical, the camaraderie. It's what gets you through those yeah. long hours, right? Yeah. It's like ha- having older brothers. <laughs> exactly it should be like a family i love them to death <laughs> but they will definitely make fun of me at any second that they can <laughs> wonderful jay any final thoughts on the pisco punch before we head into our weekly recurring questions here uh other than everyone should go out and and make one mm-hmm. immediately Especially if you're in a a hot weather. I might go make one for myself right after this. (laughs) Honestly, ever since we started talking about like marinating pineapple in sugar and pisco, I'm like, I need to do that immediately. I want this right now. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't care where I am. (laughs) (laughs) Or what temperature it is or whatever's going on. Three feet of snow outside, pisco punch sounds delicious (laughs) right now. Transport me to someplace warm. It's the alcoholic bomb, you know? What can't it take care of? All right, let's do it then. Let's kick off the recurring questions, Jay. Uh, We'll hit you with number one right here. And that, of course, is what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? Oh, in my heart, it's tequila and mezcal. Uh, In reality, at the the bar here, um, it's definitely whiskey. Um, whiskey is definitely big in this market as I think in, in many markets, I think the last place when I was out in San Francisco, we were running, um, people used to come in, they were like, Oh, but you're a whiskey bar, right? I'm like, I'm, I'm actually not sure here. Cause <laughs> I think we're a taqueria. <laughs> we love tequila and mezcal so much that like we had like 30 different bottles on the back bar. Like, yeah, we've got whiskey, but like, and we might be serving burritos in a week or two. <laughs> <laughs> what is part B, the, the, the occasional part B to this question? I'm just interested to hear it. What's the most exciting new tequila you've discovered or come across? Ooh. Or what's one that maybe deserves more recognition? You don't want it to get that recognition because then everyone starts oh, right? buying it and the prices go up, no, but you're going to reveal it. No one say anything about Fortaleza. <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of it. <laughs> Guillermo, if you're listening, please send me some. <laughs> I can't get any here in Florida right now. Oh, wow. Honestly, the the one that I'm a, a bit of a, a snob when it comes to tequila, I, I, I just know what I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the stone ovens. I mm-hmm. like either roller mill or preferably Tahona made. So obviously... Fortaleza, Siete, El Tesoro, mm-hmm. uh, Tapatio, G4, all of those are amazing. But the one that most recently I was actually just tried on, um, Patron has a new kind of high-end one that I was actually, I, I went in thinking like, I'm going to hate this. I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to like it. And I tried it. I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Like I'm actually. <laughs> are you talking about El Cielo 
or El Alto? I think it's the, uh, the green bottle, the El Alto. I yeah. think I tried both of them. I like to call that one the 1942 killer. Yeah, yes. Or, or the Class Azul killer. Exactly. Because there are no supply issues. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's a toll striking bottle. <laughs> and, and it's coming in cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I'm with you on that one. You know, actually, we just did our most recent roundup on Vine Pair, our best tequilas here for the year. And that made it in there. I'm like, this is, uh, you know, I think it's like a blend of Añejo and Reposado. It's technically bottled as a Reposado, but, yeah, because of the you know, you talk about a luxury tequila that actually, you know, luxury. And I talk about price, bottle, who it appears to be marketed for, but the yeah. actually taste of agave. That's yeah. it right there. And and you can definitely see from the flavor profile like who they're gunning for. Mm-hmm. It's like this is the all right. We're going after the Casamigos. We're going after the Class Azul. We're going after the 1942 drinkers that don't realize the additives that are added, mm-hmm. but we get that they like these flavors. So we're going to give them those flavors, but in a way that actually still still t- stays true to what agave actually tastes like. I mean, I, I always ask people, I'm like, smell that Blanco? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, does it smell like French vanilla? They're like, yeah, it does. I'm like, that's not a flavor a Blanco has. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, it's not part of an agave plant. <laughs> like, oh, God, what what is that? <laughs> mm-hmm. Jay, have you tried this other one, Curado? Ooh, I have not. So this is, I want to say, it's a um, it's a collaboration between the Estes family and mm-hmm. someone else that I'm blanking on. Apologies, we wrote about this on Vine Pair recently, but super fascinating is that they're what they're doing is they're making a blanco, and then they infuse cooked agave in the finished spirit. But Ooh. it's not only uh, Blue Weber; they're also you know using other varieties and species that would be used for uh, mezcal. They're still allowed mm-hmm. to call it a tequila and a blanco. Um, it's it, it's fabulous stuff. There's another one from a brand called Kokoro. I think there's only two. Those are the only two out there that I'm seeing that are like doing this new kind of innovation. I guess it is, but uh, one for the agave heads out there. Yeah. Well, have you seen the um, Patron has one? Cenote has one. The smoked, the mm-hmm. smoked tequilas. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wait, I had this idea probably 13 years ago talking to Carlos Camarena and I was like, Hey, why has no one ever made tequila in tequila, but make it like they make mezcal. And I could see the wheels turning and he's like, Oh, we may have to have a different nom. And -hmm. I was like, all right. I'm like, that's cool. And the reason why I brought it up was because Del Maguey had done a mezcal with blue Weber Huh. And I was like, it was amazing. And he's like, wait, they did? I was like, yeah. I'm like, so what's, why couldn't you just, <laughs> just blow everyone's like top off? And now I'm seeing these, I was like, damn it. I am not getting residuals from any of these. <laughs> they, they definitely stole my idea. <laughs> I think you might also want to have a word with the mayor of Flavortown, Guy Fieri and Sammy Hagar. Cause they, yeah. they've, they have a mezquila, right? But that is a 50, 50 blend, I believe. Of tequila. Blend. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's good. It's good stuff. It's like a high West. Right. <laughs> yeah. 
Guy Fieri just influencing the spirits world out there. It's it's, it's fantastic. Hey. It's great to hear. Also, by the way, I, before we move on, we should move on, but I want to say that celebrity tequilas and, and, and people think what they want to think about Guy Fieri, uh, but Santo Tequila is a phenomenal product for those, or massively undervalued if you just yeah. look at those two guys' reputations. Great product, no? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, pe- people knock, even on like old school Cabo Wabo, I was like, if it wasn't for Sammy and like Cabo Wabo, like none of you would even be drinking tequila. Like there wouldn't be the Patrons out there. You wouldn't be introduced to the Tapatios. All these brands would have just stayed in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't have ever been exposed to any of this. So I'm like, the product's not that bad. Mm-hmm. It might not be everyone's jam, but it's not it's not bad juice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't 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 knock it just because it's celebrity. Anyway, yeah, there's there's some good celebrity ones out there, and the the problem is there's just a lot that are not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the House of Friends, uh, that one's not you know not ideal. Inspired a lot of bad bad alcohol. Um, doesn't give you a hangover though. So there you go. Uh, yeah, it's water. <laughs> Jay, question number two: Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Hmm. I would probably say their own palate, especially young bartenders coming up. I think a lot of people, especially when they don't have a ton of experience, undervalue their own gut instinct. I, like everyone's tongue works, everyone's nose works. You know what you like, you know what you don't like. It's just being able to articulate it and understand those flavors, which takes some time. But I think more people should taste their own drinks before they send them out. That happens a lot. I mean, how many, how many times have you gotten drinks and you're like, this is going to be so overdone because I just watched them shake it for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. You're like, that was done 30 seconds ago. Like, I could have already <laughs> been drinking. And then they don't even check it. Or even if they did, you know it's bad. They know it's bad. But they still gave it to you anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, like just trusting themselves. I mean, and ha- pushing yourself to develop that palate to learn more about the flavors and how things work with and against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I I think someone's tongue, a bartender's tongue is extremely undervalued and and not used nearly enough, unfortunately, (laughs) in in the (laughs) beverage world, which is shocking. (laughs) I mean, it's like, it'd be like a chef that doesn't eat his own food. (laughs) Yeah. Never trust a skinny chef to say. (laughs) Yeah, it's so true. Uh, question number three here. What's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Oh, don't be such a dick. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Universal. <laughs> no, that, that was, uh, that was Kelly, Kelly Rivers worked with me in, uh, in San Francisco. And she had a whole bunch of very nice posters that just said, don't be a dick. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, it's good advice for everyone. Sometimes we need to be reminded. Yeah, um, I would say that the be- the best piece of advice um, I'd ever got that really struck home is that you're you're always being interviewed, you're always being evaluated, whether you're working or you're out of play. Um, I saw it happen a lot when you know great bartenders or employees, servers in restaurants or even cooks that were such badasses at their job, amazing, but when they were off they were a hot mess and how to be carried out of places. 
And then they didn't understand why when they went looking for other opportunities, why those opportunities weren't there. They're like, but I do all these things. Like, I'm so good at this. It's like, yeah, but then they see you in your off time that all of these things come together, especially in a place like San Francisco, which is, it's a big town, seven by seven type area that like, you can't get much more of a a close knit group of professionals. But when you're running around like a crazy person, it's, it's going to come back like that, that stigma will hold on to you. Um, And when uh, a much older uh, mentor of mine, told me that he's like, hey, keep in mind, like whether on the clock or off the clock, you're always being evaluated. People mm-hmm. are always judging you, whether or not it's a job opportunity or just people in general. Keep that in mind when when you act accordingly. And I was like, that is really great advice. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you sharing that with us today. I think, yeah, great reminder there. Question number four now, if you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? <laughs> Hmm. Ah, so many to choose from. So many great bars. Um, I would, I would have to go with Comstock Saloon, San Francisco, uh, North Beach area. It's one of those old school saloon type bars that I know if that was my last place that I was visiting, I would also get the twofer of like all of my friends coming through at some point during the day or evening. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a bit selfishly, like, yeah, then I could hang out with all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, all right, then, Jay. Last question for you here today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? Oh, specifically, I would make, if I could get my hands on it, a tequila old-fashioned with either the Fortalaser Still Strength or the Winter Blend. Mm-hmm. And I would just savor every last little drop of that. <laughs> nice. You know, I've never tried that Winter Blend yet. Fortalaser, guys, if you're listening. It's, 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 it's amazing. If you can get your hands on it. I can't mm-hmm. even get my hands on regular Blanco right now here in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. You mentioned earlier Fortalaser not getting your hands on it. I think it's funny if you, uh, if you do frequent the tequila subreddit Fortaleza comes mm-hmm. up about once every day someone talking about just getting their hands on a bottle and sharing a photo and then yeah. 50 people in there respond with what the fuck I can't get hold of any myself Fortaleza is going to become the, the Pappy Van Winkle of the tequila world <laughs> <laughs> it really is um, yeah it's it, it, I don't know it's an incredible story um, Jake Thanks so much for joining us today. I, I, I got I got to run out and get some pineapple right now and just start an yeah, infusion. Right? <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. 
I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.